Hello and welcome to another episode of A World to Win. This week, I am joined by James Schneider, former director of communications for Jeremy Corbyn and the co-founder of Momentum, to talk about his book, Our Block, How We Win. We talk about the challenges and opportunities facing the left in the UK and around the world and how we can bring together all the disparate parts of our movement to build a coherent block to build power. As always, thank you to our patrons who make this show possible. If you want to become a patron, you can go to patreon.com slash a world to win pod. There's a link in the description. Please do consider doing so because we need your support to continue bringing you the show. If you want to support us in another way, please do share this episode or other episodes on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Now, a quick word from our sponsor before this episode with James Schneider. This episode of A World to Win is brought to you by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles perfect for listeners like you. One that you might like is Art in the Afterculture, Capitalist Crisis and Cultural Strategy by Ben Davis. Art critic Ben Davis makes sense of our extreme present as an emerging afterculture, a culture whose forms and functions are being radically reshaped by cataclysmic events. In the face of catastrophe, he holds out hope that reckoning with the new realities of art, technology, activism and the media can help us weather the superstorms of the future. Find Art in the Afterculture at haymarketbooks.org, where readers in the US and UK receive free shipping on orders over $25 or £20 respectively. Hello and welcome to another episode of A World to Win. I am here with James Schneider, the former director of communications for Jeremy Corbyn, the co-founder of Momentum and current communications director for Progressive International. And we are going to be talking about his new book, Our Block, How We Win. How are you doing today, James? I am doing extremely well. How are you? That's very good. I'm also doing very well. I mean, I really enjoyed the book. Um, And I would very much encourage all of our listeners to go out and read it because there's some really interesting and thoughtful, strategic questions that you answer in a very kind of easy to understand way that are very relevant to what we're going through right now, which is really a moment of kind of near unprecedented, certainly in my lifetime, economic and political turmoil. Do you think that the period we're in right now is a moment of opportunity for the left globally? Yes, I think we're living in a moment of intense threat and intense opportunity for humanity as a whole i think you know not not just the left the system that we have been living in whether in the the kind of shorter term as in neoliberalism the last 40 years that's clearly breaking down it's been breaking down now for for 15 years and that you know, they've tried fix after fix and nothing is really nothing is really holding that's why you have all this dramatic political volatility at least all over the global north and the same in and the same in britain you know if you think that everything is is uh, is solid everything is you know, everything melts away rather quickly and then also in the kind of in the larger terrain that we've been living in an expansionary system for about 500 years where most things are energy consumption the amount of production consumption population size life expectancy they're all they're all expanding in relation to each other and it seems like we're hitting some hard limits to that as well so we're at a moment of great change and i think for 
those that want change to happen for the many, not the few, in the interest of the overwhelming majority of humanity, there's a lot for us to do. And, you know, we have, you know, we have to do it. Now, books, they come out a long time after you first think about them and after after you read them. So I was first thinking about this uh, towards the end of 2020, when, especially for those of us who'd spent or given given a lot to the, the Corbyn project and have been really invested in that and extremely excited about it, we felt a lot of defeat and despair and, and upset. And I, I wanted to look at the underlying strength of the left and of progressive forces and actually the underlying weakness of the ruling class, the ruling order, to show that we should get basically get off of our, our backs and start, you know, start doing things, bringing together progressive forces, social movements, trade unions, the left and the Labour Party, uh, progressive politicians are left in Parliament into new formations and new alliances, mainly targeting climate breakdown and economic inequality. And we see that that is what's starting to happen. You see that with the Enough is Enough campaign. You see that with We All Want to Just Stop Oil. So I think there is, I mean, we shouldn't be too starry-eyed about it. The, the risks, I think, to people's living standards, to, to humanity and so on, are probably the greatest they, they've ever been. And that's what the doomsday clock people say. But there are huge openings, I think, great potential for the left and progressive forces to advance. So as you just kind of laid out there, your, your analysis centres on this idea of constructing a left block. And that's an analysis that draws quite heavily on Gramsci and Gramscian theory. I want to talk a little bit about that theory, just a little bit, uh, before we go on to kind of talking about the kind of practical considerations as to how we do that. So first and foremost, why did you lean so heavily on Gramsci and your analysis? And in particular, what do you think are the parallels between the historical periods that he was analysing and our own that make this uh, framework so kind of apt? So, I mean, I used it because I think he's he's really good. And uh some of the language is a bit weird, but the language is a bit weird because he's you know, the, most of the, his works that we have are from when he's writing in prison and he's effectively writing in code to get past the, the prison censors. But once you kind of learn the, the cheat codes of what the language is, his ideas are not terribly complicated, but they are extremely useful. So his, you know, his basic question is, or he tries to provide the political theory that would run alongside Marxian economics, basically. And how could you try to bring about progressive social change and revolution in settings where, basically in in Western Europe, where the state and civil society alongside capitalism are are really well developed? And so he was writing really about the rise of fascism in Italy. You know, when he's talked the famous quote about the time of monsters and all of that, that's what that's referring to. And there are some similarities, but also I think some large discontinuity so I wouldn't lean too heavily on it I don't think I actually think the systemic crisis we're facing now is substantially larger than that that was faced in the late 20s and in in the 1930s in the productive expansion of the global economic system there was a lot more that could be done I think then and was was shown to be because um, you know the, the the peak of industrial output in for example, Britain, you know, people think about the Industrial Revolution and think, well, well, you know, when we used to make things and put that back in the 1890s or something, you know, our peak is at the, the late 50s or the early 60s. So there's a huge amount more 
production and social expansion that takes place after the time that Gramsci, Gramsci is writing. Yeah, so that's completely true. I completely agree with you. Um, I was just wondering because like Gramsci analyzes several historical figures and historical moments and you take that analysis and kind of apply it to particularly what's going on within the ruling class in the present day. So his analysis of kind of Caesarism and Bonapartism, I think your application of that to the British ruling class at the moment during this extended moment of crisis is really interesting and potentially gives us a lot of useful tools to be able to understand what's going on in the enemy camp, as it were, to use a kind of Gramscian military metaphor. Well, that's very kind of you to say. Um, uh, So to to just lay out for uh, our friendly listeners what what that is. So Gramsci is basically talking about Mussolini. He says when you have two forces, basically the reactionary set of social forces, the reactionary ruling bloc, and then the progressive counter-hegemonic bloc, are one is unable to triumph over the other, then often a third force like Caesar or or um, or Bonaparte enters the fray to reorder the political terrain and to resolve that crisis. So I then apply that to the the Brexit deadlock in 2018-2019, casting Johnson in that role, and there, you know, there, there are some amusing parallels to, for example, Marx's analysis of um, Louis Napoleon in the 18th Brumaire of Louis Napoleon. Uh, and you know, there's some quotes from that that read like they could be written about Boris Johnson or about the parliamentary stalemates that we that we saw. But things have moved on slightly. Well, they moved on a lot. Boris Johnson won't be prime, you know, won't be prime minister in a month's time. And I think it, it's interesting to see why that project failed. Because it, it was an attempt at a to create a new hegemonic right populist project, and that was extremely effective in in 2019 in the general election and shortly afterwards. And that's what they were. That's what the vote leave people were aiming at with all this people's government stuff and leveling up and doing you know making the big changes that were needed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Or you know, in their terminology, the, the, the big changes that were needed. Uh, and as we know, that all fell apart. But I question why it fell apart. I mean, of course, there's Partygate, but why is Partygate so salient? And especially why did right-wing Tory MPs and right-wing newspaper editors jump on it at a particular time and work to remove, first of all, get Johnson to change his policies on two key areas, one on COVID restrictions and then the second on having an expansionary fiscal policy, i.e. you know, being willing to spend money in less rich parts of the country which Johnson said that that's what he wanted to do. And um, yeah, there's a big backlash on the Tory right. They liked him winning and they liked the right wing stuff, but they didn't really like the populism because, at, you know, populism, you do actually have to give some people some things for it to, for it to hold. And as we see now in the Tory leadership debate, where really they're between the two of them and then when there were more candidates, they were reheating arguments for austerity Sunak is under attack for being a sort of crypto socialist or some other absurd argument because he spent a bit, a bit of money on furlough when uh, you know, the world was collapsing. <laughs> so you know, they, they had a chance. The ruling class had a chance at a hegemonic project, which you know probably wouldn't have worked under any circumstances anyway. Because in order to to secure social peace, you need an expanding system and giving people some stake in it, however small. And the, you know, the sine qua non of social peace for conservatives 
for the last 150 years in, in industrial or industrializing societies has been home ownership. And obviously, we've got to a point with the absurd unaffordability of housing that you really can't expand home ownership without hurting the uh, the paper asset prices of people who already vote Tory. So there were some enormous internal contradictions within the policy programme for that you know, failed people's government Johnsonian programme. Um, but that is what they were aiming at. Now, there aren't really any ideas what Liz Truss is going on neoliberalism turbocharged. And you've got Rishi Sunak, who's sort of relying on a more Cameron-like you know, neoliberalism light, throw in a bit of social liberalism, but also will be just as you know, hard right on immigration as a sock to particular political constituencies and newspapers. So kind of in response to this, and really since you wrote the book, we have seen a level of mobilisation among trade unions and some campaigns and some other elements of the left there's been a long time coming, to be fair, that we probably should have seen happening a year ago, but which for all sorts of reasons we didn't. How far along do you think we are in terms of laying the foundations for building something along like that would look like a left block? And what do you think the left's priorities should be in terms of where we go next? So, I mean, we're at early stages, but clearly it's happening. So I've, over the last few months, been having conversations with you know, climate action, you know, direct action, radical climate people, Black Lives Matter people, trade unionists, uh, labor, labor left people, MPs, and so on. And almost everybody's saying the same thing, regardless of what their, you know, their political culture is from, which is we need mass coalitions that bring together different aspects of the left. And the focus, everybody pretty much agrees, is the, is the same thing, is the, is the cost of living and climate crisis. Because they're actually part of the same, the same thing. I, we have to both focus on the systemic nature of the breakdown and on its immediate material impact on people because it's a majoritarian project. Now, one of the things that could have happened, and it's still a risk for the left after a defeat is to scatter to the four winds and engage in very minoritarian concerns and with increased, like, with, with more and more phrase mongering, you know, sounding more and more radical, but speaking mm. to fewer people. And th- having this focus, I think, of, on cost of living, obviously, makes things naturally majoritarian, and it's focused on the things that, you know, are most immediate and obvious to people. And it's also got this other element, I think. We've often got this kind of copium uh, on the left, which <laughs> is Britain is a natural conservative country or, or England is an actually conservative country and other other formulations and you know really it's not our fault that we can't have a bloody win because you know oh all these English people they're really just really quite conservative and you know now we we, we comprehensively do not have that excuse uh, not only because we showed that um, you know, a, a left-led Labour Party can get 13 million votes on a you know, decent social democratic program as we did in 2017. But, you know, on, on issue after issue, if you look at the polling, not just the narrow majority, the overwhelming majority of the public are quite a long way to the left to where the 2019 Labour manifesto was mm. on minimum wage, on types of nationalisation, and uh, ways to tax the rich, and so on and so forth. So we have, you know, common sense, of course, 
is bilocated. It doesn't sit in one one spot and it depends how it's activated and who activates it. But it, it leans in a progressive direction. So, you know, we have that. Then there is an enormous constituency of people whose material interests are not being served and will not be served, uh, you know, by the system that they're excluded from. And we've now got many years of, you know, advanced political struggle. So we've got, you know, better networks, better organisations and more trained up people, more, you know, more capable left than we had, you know, seven or ten years ago. And if you were, are able to bring together those combination of factors, okay, there is, we don't have a political expression for it, just in there isn't a party leadership. But if it can be given political expression, that doesn't have to be in Parliament, it can be in Parliament of some sort, I think you can begin to, to cohere mass social blocks in society and then out from that, something will happen. Yeah, and one of those elements one of the parts of that block is of course the labor movement which up until recently was seen as at least being in perennial decline and yet at the moment we're seeing a real resurgence in organizing and strike action and obviously that is because inflation always has and always will be a highly political issue for workers and unions that really you know forces class conflicts into the centre stage of, you know, what's going on in politics that happened in the 70s and 80s and it's happening again today. At the same time, though, we do have an issue here in the sense that the labour movement has been in decline for a very long time. There are lots of people who are in sectors that could be unionised or unionising and yet who, you know, they don't really identify with, like, membership of unions or they maybe don't even know what a union is or what a union can do for them. And for those outside of those sectors, there are kind of questions about, okay, well, how can we link up these struggles? You know, we see what Mick Lynch and, you know, Dave Ward and people are doing. We want to help, but we're not quite sure how all these things link together. So what do you think can be done to kind of expand the appeal of the labour movement and also link up those struggles with what's going on in the wider movement? So I I think... Every struggle, every individual struggle, especially when it can be you know, articulated in a universal way, i.e. Uh, this isn't just about the, the wages of one small, you know, one group of workers in one sector, it stands in for everyone else. And I think that's what was done so amazingly well by, uh, by Mick Lynch and his, you know, Mick Lynch versus the media, you know, all those endless interviews, which were brilliant. And they're brilliant because... You know, he's saying, yeah, I'm standing up for my for my members. They shouldn't be facing these massive pay cuts and, uh, you know, reorganising their work in, in this way and made to work all these endless night shifts and all the rest of it. But also saying everyone should be in a union, no one should be getting a pay cut and, and making that point you just made about the political nature of inflation. Inflation is not some natural event that, that, that's just occurred. And who pays for it is always a political question. So I think with each strike, and we're going to see, as we know, you know, this whole wave, I think this, this autumn, we're going to have a big autumn, big autumn of action. That will help. Then the joining up is where other movements, other progressive movements and different activists and campaigners come in. So, you know, one of the things that was, I would, did a little bit of work on and found unbelievably heartening was organized helping to get um, climate activists to RMT picket lines. Mm. You've got all these uh, Just Stop Oil, Extinction Rebellion, Insulate Britain, 
Green New Deal rising, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, activists turning up at picket lines to say like we're all part of the same struggle. Yeah, that wouldn't have happened four or five years ago. Things have come on a long way. This kind of coalitional thinking, federating our forces, calling it a block, whatever you know, whatever. This is actually uh, becoming the common sense for activists in their, and and you know, normal people looking around to do something in lots of different walks of life. And even like you know, Just Stop Oil, they put out a statement in solidarity with Unite Oil Workers who have a pay dispute. Because they're saying, yeah, we're against oil, but the workers who are in it need to be part of the transition to, to you know, they, these are skilled people mm. who don't want to be made to suffer for, you know, the, the, what the, what the company's been doing. In fact, they're a massive part of how, you know, if we're going to escape from climate breakdown in any particular, in any particular way, they're going to be a massive part of that. So I think that's already coming. And then practically what we can do, let's, you know, focus on this, on this autumn. There are three actions that the, the popular classes, working people, you know, whatever, whatever term you want to use, the people have throughout history, or at least throughout the last two, three hundred years, have used to resist oppression and win victories for themselves, for their families, for their communities. And those three things are going on strike, withdrawing their labour. And we're seeing, you know, we're seeing a lot of that. The second is just not paying, boycotting, re- refusing to pay. And we see the, the don't pay campaign on energy bills building up a massive head of steam. And the third is occupying places or, you know, sitting down, blockading, stopping in some way. And, you know, we're going to get a, an absolutely massive load of that, especially focused on uh, you know, on climate breakdown, on fossil fuel companies, their financial enablers, and on the, the government that allows it all to happen. So these three things, these three types of activity need to be linked up in some way. Now, that doesn't actually mean, you know, they, they all need to be autonomous as well, but they need to be part of a common front. One can't be set against the other. They're, these are a common front of people saying the system is completely broken. The ruling class has no idea what to do about it. It can't help anyone. And whether the the struggle that most matters to you is your bills, your pay, or the planet's future, those things are united because we we have a common enemy. There is is a common underlying problem. It's not like uh, the ruling class can deal with the climate breakdown while impoverishing everyone and, and slashing everyone's wages. These things have to go together. That brings me very nicely onto my next question, <laughs> uh, which is that lots of people are calling for kind of direct action in quite generic terms. You see this a lot on online. When someone launches a campaign or someone does something, people will just be like, oh, well, what about direct action? Now, we obviously need direct action. And I'm wondering what the foundations of it have to be and also what kinds, what forms of direct action are most appropriate. So I think first and foremost, a big question is, do you need actual organizational structures to be able to like undertake effective direct action? Or can we just say, as I think some people are wont to do, it will just happen spontaneously, just kind of do it. And what kinds of examples do you have or do you think are most effective that we're seeing at the moment? You know, we had things like people putting concrete in golf holes 
um, when the uh, water, the hosepipe ban was announced and golf courses had an exemption, stuff like that. What are some examples of like direct action that you think is particularly effective? So to start with the spontaneity point, I mean, spontaneity versus organisation, it's a little bit like reform versus revolution. (laughs) It's an age-old debate and and basically a a false one that... Mm requires an extreme dichotomization like of course nothing is actually totally spontaneous like if five people do a thing they at the very minimum they have an organization between the five of them to do a thing mm. then how were they brought together what you know what other networks are they in and, and and so on and so forth so i mean no i think the idea that oh they'll just be spontaneous resistance which sort of means don't bother working on organization is is wrong but at the same time organization doesn't need to mean something that's been going for 100 years it's mm. not carrying dues payers i mean it, it can be a whatsapp group um it can be the ways in which people are connected so yeah, that's on on that first bit and then on on things i'd really like to see i'll talk about two different things one is the, the you know different types of direct action on its own but the the, the, the thing I want to talk about first is how it can be additive, right? The different, these different types of direct action, because they are like, if you are walking off your job and not going to work and standing outside your workplace and stopping other people going in, that is direct action, right? That's a form of direct action. If you're refusing to pay something, that is also a form of direct action. If you are occupying a fossil fuel company's head office, that is also a form of, of, of direct action. I think what we we should be looking at is how these things add together. So one one example of something one that I, I worked on back end of last year. So I, I, with Progressive International, we co-convened with Uni Global Union the Make Amazon Pay campaign. We had a global day of action with strikes and protests in I think twenty five or thirty countries around the world throughout Amazon's supply chain in every inhabited continent in the world on Black Friday, which was the 27th of November, I think. And not as part of the campaign, formally, not as part of the coalition, but on the same day, in solidarity with the Amazon workers coming out on strike, Extinction Rebellion uh, blockaded um, some Amazon warehouses. So, you know, this is direct action building on other direct action. It's direct action coming from multiple angles. It's bringing into focus the labour, the environmental, and then in some cases other uh, vectors of struggle at the same time. And I think that brings immense power because not only if you show you've got a common enemy and they're being attacked from, from multiple sides, it gives them much bigger headaches, it's much harder to deal with. But it also shows the commonality between, you know, it's, it brings together the many against a few, basically. And, and you know, every time we're majoritarian, we're much more likely to win because we are the overwhelming majority. But most of the time, we aren't acting as the overwhelming majority. And that's part of the ruling class's power. Then on, on you know, the more narrow question of, of just types of direct action full stop, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be... Overly critical of anyone's particular types, but I would say you want to be majoritarian. Like you want to cause maximum disruption, but maximum disruption to your actual enemy rather than to ordinary people. Or if it is to ordinary people, you need to have your message about that. So take the you know the rail strike. That's an extremely good example. That causes a lot of disruption 
two people, but it was so well communicated about why that was that it doesn't set up the uh, the direct action group in this case a trade you know rail workers going on strike with their trade union against um, you know a public that can be cast in communicative terms at, you know as the many or in the majoritarian position. So I think you know something that grabs attention that's exciting that's newsy that's spectacular. That's, you know, that's good. That's what you want. We live in an attention economy and spectacle is what drives communication, um, really. Uh, Are you a situationist now? <laughs> <laughs> that's a joke. Don't put that in, Connor. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of uh, movements that are kind of creating quite a lot of a stir at the moment, we've got obviously Don't Pay UK emerging in the kind of direct action slash consumer organizing sphere. Now, this is a really interesting campaign that obviously faces a lot of difficulties when particularly doing things like communicating in the media, because if you are an organization that is explicitly saying, don't pay your bills, it's going to be difficult to then put forward obvious leaders who can then potentially be, you know, prosecuted or, you know, have difficulties with uh, law enforcement or whatever. So how do you think that kind of movement can or should be integrated with the rest of the left? And do you think there are opportunities to kind of expand it? Yeah, so, I mean, that's an interesting one because, you know, it doesn't want to be, for understandable reasons, too badged as being, you know, a lefty thing. Mm. Um, we saw, like, Katie Hopkins, for example, tweeting the other day, I'm cancelling my direct debit and you should all yeah. do the same thing. So, like, this is definitely not just, like, a left thing. But, you know, when we are... Sometimes it pains us because... Part of being on the left as a you know as a as a, as a as an activist, someone who gives a large amount of time to it, there is some self identity construction going on. But if we're to mm. like back from ourselves and, and look strategically, when the left has won anywhere, basically at any time in human history, it's it's won because it has been the force of the people, the majority, the you know the 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 people's will, so on. It's not been seen as being um, a kind of outside or marginal or one-part thing. Generally speaking, okay, fine, there, there, there are probably some exceptions that people can can write into me with. But, I mean, that's the, that's the basic thing. I mean, even, look, you know, look at the Paris Commune, that takes place in basically a patriotic register uh, after the defeat of the, of the French um, army by the, uh, by the Prussians. So I, I understand why don't pay don't want to, you know, they want to basically seem transversal. And that's, a, you know, that is a good thing. That's where we want our best cons. But that doesn't mean that you have to run away from left-wing arguments in the slightest. Mick Lynch did that very well on TV. You know, he came, I, I'm sure there are loads of people that vote Tory that were nodding their heads yeah. at what he was saying. And it's not like he was dressing it up in non-left-wing you know, non language or whatever. It's just, it's just talking common sense. And that, you know, that's... That's how, you know, that's how we need to speak and how we need to operate as much as possible anyway. We want to be majoritarian because we want to win. Then to the campaign itself, I think it's, uh, I've seen it get slagged off a bit on uh, online and I think that's very unfair and short-sighted. One of the attacks against the Don't Pay campaigns is based on the idea that it's too slick to be just done by a group of ordinary, you know, lefty activists, which, it, um, you know, we're allowed to be good at stuff too. But, <laughs> um, 
and you know we should be proud of being actually having technical you know technical capacities to to do some things and they've been very good at getting on the media and you know they have got spokespeople on things like you know ordinary people with just their first name have been on you know good morning britain and other things like that but the, the i think the thing that is interesting about the, the the campaign and will be interesting regardless is there are already a million people who can't pay their bills and that is going to you can't pay their energy bills so that's about to go up a lot and at the moment that's an individual problem that's a problem for that person that mm-hmm. person's family they're, they're isolated the minute you build a campaign whether those million people who are already unable to pay their bills or let's speculate two and a half million or however many it'll end up being come october who can't pay their who can't pay their bills even if they're not signed up even if they haven't even heard of the campaign their individual misery and stress has become a form of collective action because of how mm. many people they, they, they brought together. So it is, you know, it's a way of taking the exploitation and turning it against itself in the same logic as, you know, why is workers organising in the workplace to then have the capacity to withdraw their labour or to go slow or work to rule or whatever it is? Why is that powerful? It's because that's a massive site of social exploitation. And if you can bring it together as a force it then fights back. And I think regardless of whether don't pay use, uh, you know, explicit alliances with the left, I mean, the left are going to be, or a lot of the left and uh, progressive movements are going to be supporting them and linking up in, you know, in, in, in some way, although I don't think they're going to affiliate to anyone. I've deliberately saved this set of questions for the end because I didn't want to spend too much time talking about the Labour Party. But I mean, a lot of what you say at the beginning of the book is kind of couched as a response to this dichotomy again, this kind of reductive dichotomy that we've seen between people who are just like, there's no point being in Labour, you know, it's bad. And the people who are just like, don't mourn, organise. And you argue for this kind of strategic approach with regards to the Labour Party rather than the kind of fairly like, you know, emotive shall we say and like yeah the emotive response that's based on a kind of sense that if you're joining something then you are in one way or another kind of identified with it so what do you think that strategic orientation to the Labour Party should be at this point in time given you know quite how much the left has been sidelined and marginalized to the extent that you know it really does look now like Keir Starmer is literally putting nationalization off the table for the sole reason that he doesn't think he can say anything that Jeremy Corbyn ever said what is the kind of strategic orientation that the left can use in that context? Yeah, so, I mean, <clears throat> I, I should caveat it with this with saying, like, it, I, I, I do understand why after people invested so much emotional energy, so much hope, so much work, so much passion, so much joy, so much anger in the Labour Party under Jeremy's leadership, as our strategic horizon for how we were going to make the world a better place. I understand uh, on an emotional level entirely how you feel caught up in that, either desperately trying to hang on and say, no, no, this is the way that we always must do it, or this is a disgusting thing we now hate, you know, the thing that we loved we now we now hate. And I, 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 I do get that, and I don't think it should, you know, either of those responses should be should be sneered at. That said, I don't think either of them are, are right, and I think it's a I think it's a false debate because even when we had the leadership of the Labour Party, we weren't powerful. We didn't have sufficiently powerful progressive social forces in society. You know, the forces of progress 
the forces of the many, however you want to put it, we weren't organized enough and strong enough to win and then to if we had won an election to then force through you know really imp- important fundamental change and we still don't have that obviously so the question of whether the labor party at some unknown point in the future that which will have huge contingent questions will be a vehicle seems to me uh, kind of putting the cart before the horse and the work that we need to be doing is this block building federating coalitional work that strengthens progressive social forces individually and collectively through the bringing them together then there will be contingent openings on the in the political field right related to labor party mm. or not we can't we don't we can't know what those are going to be right yeah in 2012 you wouldn't have said it well most people wouldn't have said it was possible to have the five years on the the labor party getting 13 million votes, or was it 12 million votes? No, 13 million votes. 13 million votes on a left social democratic program five years five years on. But then Eric Joyce laid out some Tory MP in a bar. You know, like history history is too weird for us to just say one thing is necessarily going to happen. So from a strategic point of view, we what we want to do is strengthen our forces. So that whatever does come up, we are more likely to be able to find an opening and take advantage of. So that's it. You know, I'm I'm still a member of the Labour Party. I'm 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 not going to I'm, I'm not going to leave. Um, FYI, just for the purposes of honesty, as am I. Well, yeah, I mean, I I I, I think that there isn't any point in, in, in within our electoral system another new small left party. I mean, we tried that a whole load of times. What you you know what we need is something with sufficient social force that's actually going to win. Not only because you know being on the it, it, this really shouldn't be hobbyism. Like we do, you know, we do really want to change society, and actually we really have to. The, if, if, if you look at the system at a macro level, at energy, at debt, at production, at resources, we are you know we're very close to breaking point. And, you know, we, I don't think we have the luxury of not trying to take, of not trying to take power, not trying to win. I couldn't agree more. I mean, you're obviously very familiar with the ins and outs of the Labour Party itself, having spent quite some time dealing with it when Jeremy Corbyn was, uh, was leader and you were working for him. What are some of the biggest lessons that you took away from that experience and if we are just to kind of suspend disbelief at the moment and imagine that the left might have another opportunity to kind of push for a socialist candidate within the Labour Party or a socialist transformation of the Labour Party to the extent that such a thing is possible, what lessons would you think that have been most important to learn from this experience? So when Jeremy was elected leader, when the left took over the party in, in 2015, we really had no idea about what a real movement party, socialist movement party would look like and would be structured because no one had really thought about it because no one really thought it was going to happen. And there was a bit of thinking on the job done over the five years. But, you know, if we're we're honest with ourselves, we did fail in transforming many, many vital aspects of the party. And I think... Regardless of whether you think that it's more likely that our political vehicle has a red rosette on it 
or not in five years' time or whatever that might, you know, whatever it might be. We need to do the thinking now of what a movement party that has the collective will to force through radical change to really transfer wealth and power from the few to the many, what that's going to look like. So that is everything from how local meetings are on, what is even the point of local meetings, you know, what does membership mean, uh, how is policy created, what's the role of conference, all of this stuff um, that we basically just did with a left hat on but kept the same structures. That all needs to be, I think, radically rethought because regardless of the vehicle, it's going to need to be very different, either created anew or changed or, you know, or totally transformed at some point. This crisis obviously isn't just affecting the UK. Uh, We're seeing kind of political upheaval all around the world as a result of the post-COVID shock. You now obviously do some work for Progressive International, so you see some of the stuff that is happening, both with kind of left movements and left political parties. Where is, you know, kind of good, exciting stuff happening? What is that good, exciting stuff? And what can we learn from socialist and left and even actually social democratic responses to this crisis elsewhere in the world? So Latin America is where the left are chalking up the most wins and really quite, if you if you look at the last uh, 18 months, two years, you've had the return to democracy and the, the, the left in Bolivia, Unfortunately, we lost in Ecuador, but one in Honduras, Peru. Uh, we had already one in Mexico. There's a left government in, in Argentina. Lula in Brazil, massive, massive, hugely important country, is well ahead in the polls. Elections were in October. Gustavo Petro just won in Colombia, their first ever left-wing government. And so there's a, and, and in Chile as well, they, they've got a, a new left-wing president and they've got a referendum coming up on a new constitution to overthrow, get rid of Pinochet's extreme neoliberal and authoritarian and anti-democratic constitution and replace it with a really rather impressive one which guarantees a whole range of social and, and other rights. And these examples, they're, you know, we shouldn't imagine that they're in any way perfect or that they somehow escape from the same structural challenges that you know progressive projects all around the world are going to face again with respect to these systemic issues that we're that we're discussing but i think you see in a number of them either in how they've won so in colombia you know petro has run several times before the left has never won but he was able to construct an extremely broad coalition. And I don't just mean broad in terms of the political spectrum. You know, they've got, you know, all of the left, all of the liberals, all of the centre, and even a little bit of the centre-right together. But much more importantly, I think, you know, they have the Afro-Colombian groups, the trade unions, feminist groups. They have the whole swell, uh, the um, uh, peasant movements, Congress of the People, really bringing together all the progressive uh, social blocks into, uh, you know, into one common front. And, you know, strategically, that's extremely impressive. And there's plenty that we can learn from there in you know, the constitution in Chile, the, the, the document itself, which is, is good. There's plenty that we, that we can and should learn from, but also to link up with. We also, as I was sort of saying before, we shouldn't fall into just straightforward because we don't have 
the current political project here that we just sort of perform some substitutionism and we think that everything over there is, is fantastic because they face tremendous pressures geopolitical as well as the uh, you know environmental and, uh, and and geoeconomic pressures but there is a, you know, there's a lot going on in the rest of the world and the thing is there will continue to be because the temperature of class conflict around the world is is really heating up and it's going to continue to do so because the the things which tend to smooth that over which are big increases in uh, in production, in incapacity, or massive amounts of debt. And we've got towards the edge of those two things that we can do. So we are going to have this, this conflict, this more sort of antagonistic social terrain and therefore political terrain. Uh, and you know, some of that's going to go in really ugly directions, of course. I mean, we also see at the same time the rise of different you know, right-wing forces and further right-wing uh, forces in you know, basically all over the world. That's because the, you know, that's, what, what's that, the, that phrase, you know, the centre cannot hold. I mean, it, 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 it really can't because, you know, they ran out of road a while ago. It's a real roadrunner thing. You know, they're, they're, the legs are still going, but they're off the cliff. Uh, and then, you know, the question is what happens next? Finally, what are one or two things, a few things that people can go away from this interview and do immediately, whether those are small things, large things, whatever? So I think join organisations if you aren't in them. If you're a tenant, join a tenants union. If you're a worker, find a, find a trade union to, to join, join ACORN or Momentum, all these sorts of things and try to apply yourself to them. And then I think within them, what you're arguing, trying to argue for is these things which bring things together, the, these coalitional broad fronts that are focused on the majoritarian interest, the interests of most people, what's going on that is common sense as possible, that keep in sight, though, the climate breakdown and the, the systemic breakdown, because otherwise we'll end up with, you know, these sticking passes that last a few months. Like, look at Labour's policy that they just announced on on uh, stopping bill rises, right? Yeah, it's good. We we don't want the, the bills to rise. We don't want to pay twenty eight billion quid to the energy companies for it. And what happens after April? You know, are we just going to endlessly pay more and more more and more public money to the energy companies? So if you don't have some kind of structural or systemic understanding that you're trying where you're trying to go to in the longer term. You know, then our demands won't work. But the top line of demands, as we are seeing, I think, quite well generally with, for example, the um, enough is enough or we all want to just stop boil or anything that's tried to boil things down into, uh, into top line demands, these immediate things that people can grasp and understand will improve their lives right now. James Schneider, thank you very much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. Thank you for having me.